kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the February 15th episode of Auntie Nanny. With me this evening is the best producer money can't buy, and that's good because I still don't pay him, although I bet he wishes he were getting hazard pay after dealing with the sound issues today. Hi, Barry. How are you? Uh, Fine now. Not so good (laughs) about 20 minutes ago, but yeah. (sighs) Hopefully everybody can hear all right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you can't hear anything or anything sounds unclear, now would be the time to let us know. Uh, only because right from here, we're going to start the Casa update. So yeah, I shall go get Julie. Okay. Yeah, you get the president of Casa. Hello. 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 Okay. Good evening and welcome to the Casa update for the week of 2-15-2016. Hi, Julie. How are you this evening? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. So what's new and exciting this week? You know, legislative sessions. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of fun last year towards the end of the year where we got to talk about lots of interesting stuff. Now we're just kind of knee deep in um, legislative stuff. Um, yeah. You know, we're, we've issued a number of call to actions, um, calls to action in the last week, and mm-hmm. we're going to be issuing a substantial number this week as well. So it's pretty par for the course for legislative season. Um, Alaska is a potentially really troubling one. They're looking okay. at um, a proposed 100% wholesale tax on everything, not, not just liquids, um, but liquids and hardware, which would just simply ruin the entire industry out there. Um, Brick and mortars would just close up shop. Um, And, you know, we've got a real challenge, I think, with legislators to help them understand that, um, you know, the brick and mortar shops are are particularly sensitive to these taxes, um, you know, because they've got to 
a business location there yes. and they provide an incredibly valuable service to consumers um, and I, I think a lot of legislators have in their mind that they're they're giving the shaft to big tobacco mm-hmm. when they pass <laughs> taxes and, and they they don't understand oh no the tobacco companies pretty much just absorb it and uh, well, they don't absorb it. I mean, really, they absorb it by passing it along to us. But it right. it doesn't really cause um, you know much of a, a misstep for them. Um, whereas this kind of stuff is just ruinous. If you imagine a, a hundred dollar device um, being subjected to a hundred percent wholesale tax, I, it would just devastate things. So we've got a real challenge, and we've issued the call to action. They've got a hearing tomorrow. Um, one of the really nice things about Alaska is because it is such a large state, mm-hmm. people are, they, they actually set up a process for people to participate in these hearings via teleconference. And, nice. you know, that really is nice. They, they do try to actively um, involve their citizens. And so we would absolutely encourage people to take advantage of this. You know, we have issued a call to action. If you live in Alaska and you did not receive it in your email, check your, your spam filter and make sure that your address is up to um, date with WSA because we did send out um, an email on the call to action yesterday and then mm-hmm. a secondary smaller one on Alaska today. So um, compare and contrast Alaska with Washington state, whereas Alaska, I guess, really does try to involve its electorate. Um, Washington does not. And the Washington House of Representatives quickly did um, a pretty nasty amendment to a bill um, and then pushed it to the floor for a vote all within the matter of a few hours. And and it seems to me that it was done um, specifically to avoid having um, consumers and businesses, stakeholders, have an opportunity to offer input. And, you know, we we see this from time to time, and it's pretty crappy. I never fail to get upset by it. Um, It is, you know, I used to be a practicing lawyer, and I understand strategy. You know, you do things at the last minute. You keep things quiet. It's a strategy when you're in litigation. But we're talking about legislation, and it's not supposed to be about strategies. It's it's supposed to be about passing laws and um, involving your electorate in it and um, having honest and pretty transparent conversations about yes. the legislation that they're passing. So this kind of stuff um, just really ticks me off. But we'll be issuing a call to action um, probably in the next several days um, that will be addressed to the Senate um, because it is not over yet by any stretch of the imagination. It just had some issues with the House and you know it was flavor ban restrictions sampling ban labeling internet sales bans um, there was no tax from what we understand so that huh. was a small thing but whatever um, we're also expecting to be issuing a call to action on West Virginia um, in the next week um, several bits of legislation going there including a proposed 7.5 cent per milliliter tax on e-liquid um, Maryland, we're anticipating a call to action again this week on a proposed um, tax of 30% wholesale on devices and liquid. Um, And it's continuing along the theme of taxing the hell out of these life-saving products. (laughs) Um, Pennsylvania, the tax is back again in the governor's budget. 
because yeah. this thing has been, I, I don't know, it's been a yo-yo. It's in one day, it's out the next, in, out, in, out, um, and it's back in again. Um, so we'll be updating the call to action again this week. Um, boy, Pennsylvania, just really, we're, we're fortunate, though, because we've got some very passionate and engaged advocates in Pennsylvania. Um, yes. Safada has a very strong Pennsylvania chapter, so industry is um, very on top of things there, which makes life a lot easier. Yes. Um, Vermont, we issued um, a call to action mm-hmm. in the past week, um, indoor vaping ban. Um, Georgia is... Well, wait, before I get to Georgia, sorry, I'm not nearly as organized as Alex is. Um, Utah, we've got a proposed tax. It's mother legislation, and we're expecting to issue the call to action um, as soon as it gets scheduled um, for a hearing. Um, So now I'm going to scoot back up to... So this is like all this bad news, bad news, bad news. I I hate doing bad news. So I'm going to give you some good news. Um, Georgia, we had, and I don't know if you guys talked about this last week. Georgia had um, some introduced legislation that was um, every bit as bad as Indiana's was last year in terms of these just ridiculously overreaching regulations that were basically de facto bans because if you cannot comply with the regulations um, or the, you know the, the rules that they put forward, then you can't sell your product. So um, Indiana is currently in litigation and it's pretty nasty. Well, so what happens? Georgia pops up with pretty much the same bill. There were some differences, but not many. And, um, you know, Alex and I were talking and we decided that this was pretty much just a different shade of lipstick on the same pig. Um, <laughs> so, so that sounds like really bad news, but here's the good news. Um, we found out about it quickly. Um, you know, there, there's an industry group in Georgia, um, you know, Georgia smoke free and, and they were very engaged and we were very engaged and we all acted super quickly. And, um, you know, especially with the consumers, there there was such an incredible pushback so quickly that it kind of derailed things. And um, at the last minute, it was set for a hearing very quickly. At the last minute, the bill was pretty much gutted. So that at this point, it it, it is a fairly benign bill um, that just makes some definitional changes and not much more. Now, that's not to say that this issue is dead Mm -hmm. because, you know, like Pennsylvania, (laughs) Um, They come in, they go out, they come in, they go out. The language can be tacked onto something else. So we're we're still very engaged in Georgia. But that really is good news and and a strong indication that, um, you know, your voice actually matters. You know, it really does make a difference. We had more than a thousand, I think I'm right, I think it was more than a thousand Georgia residents respond to the call to action, which is... um, yeah, it's pretty tremendous. They've been, they've been ready. I think the Georgia vapors <laughs> been ready to step up um, and and deal with it. Um, you know, we picked up a few more um, sponsors on HR twenty fifty eight, which would change the predicate date. Um, and we're now at, I believe, almost fifty. I think we're at forty nine co sponsors, which is pretty tremendous. And um, we're excited. We we think that it really is gaining traction right now, though. Um, 
I believe I'm correct in saying that all the co-signers are still Republicans, so it's still a partisan bill. And we think that's a shame because tobacco harm reduction should not be a partisan issue. I mean, absolutely. you know, all, all legislators should be interested in um, helping people reduce their risk and safeguarding access to low-risk products. So, um, you know, we're hopeful that some of the, you know, some of the sponsorship will broaden out, um, but we continue to see it gaining traction, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, Chicago, we issued um, a, a call to action for people in the Chicago area, and I know that you and Alex have talked about Chicago um, numerous times, but, you know, I'm going to say it again because I'll tell you, just as I get griped out by legislators that pull sneaky tricks to try to get things passed without their constituents having an opportunity to speak. I I also get pretty ticked off by um, so-called public health, you know, these Chicago (laughs) Department of Public Health um, lying to people and misinforming them all in an attempt to justify um, a ruinous tax. Just ruinous and we're seeing businesses really um being put through the ringer in chicago and you know it's easy enough for us to talk about well you know chicago you know they can just move outside of chicago and um there is some truth to that and people who live in the chicago area certainly um can go to the suburbs to do their shopping but i think it's important to remember that you know the people who are not particularly mobile are people who don't have much money and um, smokers are very heavily represented among this group so what they're doing is not only making it outrageously expensive for um, people who don't have much money and who are smoking um, they're they're also making it almost impossible for them to access any of the products other than the stuff being sold at the convenience stores and um, that's pretty egregious. So if you live in the Chicago area, do check out our call to action and, and um, you know, let, let people know what you think about that. Um, and I guess, you know, just a few other things. We sent out our newsletter mm-hmm. last week. Yeah. So, again, if you didn't get your newsletter, check your spam filter. Um, because we send out a lot of emails. When we send it to the entire membership, it's, <laughs> it's a big bulk email. Um, we, we're almost, I want to say we're at 133,000 members, maybe 134,000. Um, now, we don't email all of them. Some of them have opted out of emails, um, but most get them. So sometimes it'll get caught in your spam filter. Um, other times people think they've joined CASA, but they haven't. Um, right. So they should check on that. And then, you know, the other two things I wanted to mention, sorry, it's like the stream of consciousness, but I'm actually looking at my notes here. Um, you know, the, the two big things that we're really pushing right now, um, registering to vote mm-hmm. and the testimonials. And the registering to vote, I know that um, you guys have talked about this probably ad nauseum, but I want to throw in my, my little pitch on this too. It is not difficult to register to vote. In fact, 23 states allow you to register to vote online. I mean, mm-hmm. that easy. Um, it, it's just not that difficult, and yet it is so very 
very important. Personally, I don't care who you vote for. Um, I just care that you let your legislators know that you're registered to vote, you are going to vote, and this issue is something that is so important to you that it is one of the main things that you take into account when you're casting your vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't just say that if you haven't registered to vote, because not only is it lying, and that's not a nice thing to do, um, these legislators actually can tell whether you've registered to vote, and they can also tell whether you voted. They can't tell how you voted. That's right. private, of course. But, um, you know, they, they do give weight to the people who are registered to vote and who actually vote, and they can figure that out if they're so inclined, and, and some of them actually are. Um, then... The other thing is the testimonials, and we are now above 8,000, which is pretty tremendous, um, but we we should be at triple that amount, quadruple. Mm -hmm. How do you say five, five times? I'll just say five times because I can't think of the appropriate (laughs) number for it. I mean, we we should just have tens of thousands of these and um, 8,000 is pretty awesome but we can absolutely do better and you know the link to the testimonials is out there legislators are paying attention to it Um, you know it's hard to ignore when you have thousands of people talking about how this worked especially when they talk about how nothing else before this worked for them so that's pretty much it and I think I did it in 15 minutes and if you have any questions or I, I think you did too. <laughs> just I just threw it all out there. I, I'm just not at, as good at this as Alex is, so I apologize. Um oh, no. no. But yeah. Okay, so I just got the note. Yes, I made it to fifteen. So anyway, well, thank you so much for having me on and, and next week you'll have Alex back, um, who who's much better at this than I am. No, you're both really good at it. He is much better at this than I am. That's okay. I don't mind. Anyway, listen, thanks a lot, guys. And we'll um, have the the notes on the the blog up tomorrow, hopefully, so people can check out links. But just real quick, if you're in Alaska and you're listening to this, um, stop listening right now and go find the the call to action because you really need to respond like now. Absolutely. And then you can catch this on rebroadcast. Okay? Okay. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, guys. Bye. Good night. Bye. And that was the Kassab update. <laughs> <laughs> it was the very fast Kassab update. So. As long as it works. <laughs> yeah, it works. Okay. Hi, guys. How are you? No genie this evening. She had... Uh, emergency so it's just kind of us this evening um uh, i wanted to mention uh justice antonin scalia died um this week so that was kind of sad i thought um uh, it's always the, sad. the the tribute from ginsburg was quite good i you know i i didn't even really read any of that i was um Okay, so what I was basically doing was um, there's there's alternative media and there's other alternative media. I don't think we're actually alternative media 
as most of the stuff comes from mainstream news sources. It just most of it drops on a Friday and you guys don't see it. Um, but I spent most of the last few days um, watching um, people work themselves up about testimonial given by um, the owner of the ranch where Justice Scalia was found. And um, all I'm going to say about this is if you've never been around a, a dead body um, or you've never worked um, in a morgue or the healthcare industry or, or any of those things and, and been around someone who's, who's recently passed, you don't realize um, what the release of gases does to a body, what it'll make a body do to itself, what contractions make a body do. Uh, it's just really interesting stuff. And, and anyway, I um, didn't want to get caught up in that um, stuff that I've been reading and watching people posting videos going absolutely out of their minds about some of the stuff that was said. And, and I'm just going, hmm. Something about it just seems funny. So I'm not really going to talk about that. I, I am going to talk about... Um, I know not everybody liked Justice Scalia, but, you know, he, he did represent a faction, a very small faction of people who believed that the Constitution should actually be interpreted as it was written hundreds of years ago. So it was kind of a loss because many of the constitutionalists on the Supreme Court um, think it's a living document. And, you know, it might be, it might not be. Um, it's certainly an interesting document. and It's interesting to see how things are interpreted. But I also remember... Antonian Scalia standing up and talking about in times of war, the law falls silent. Um, what he meant was the Japanese internment camps in 1942. Um, and when he talked about the war on terror, I remember him standing in front of a, a large audience of law school students and telling them that he could see that internment camps would happen again and that the law would do what it always does and basically fall silent. And um, I just think um, it took amazing guts to stand up and say that that happened, it was wrong, we were wrong, and it will happen again. So um, kudos to him for that. I know a lot of his rulings pissed a lot of people off. Um, but if you actually interpret the Constitution the way it was written, what is constitutional might not be ethical. Yeah. Sadly. So. Yeah, um, ethics were a touch different back then. Yeah. Yeah, they were. So it... it um, it's just, I don't know, it's sad. It does leave a gap in the Supreme Court and it leaves a bunch of cases sitting there waiting to be heard. And, you know, I'm not sure that does anybody any good. I'm also not sure you should be rushing to fill an appointment with just anybody. So, um, yeah, I know, you know. Um, people are criticizing Obama's regime for not immediately appointing somebody, which well, is just insane. 
They need to have time to you need to check out the candidates. candidates. Exactly. Yeah. And and it's not just that though. I mean the man died and two hours later there's press conferences talking about I'm going to appoint someone to this really? The man just died. Yeah. I don't know. I uh I thought that whole thing was kind of in poor taste. But um I mean it used to take them months to do yeah. appointments. Why should now be any different, you know? Well, it really shouldn't be. Um, it does take time. You really do have to screen people. And it doesn't matter how they fit with the Supreme Court. I mean, it kind of does, but it doesn't. I just, I don't know. I think it's going to be really, it's going to be an interesting time. And um, the Chinese proverb, uh, me live in interesting times, which is actually a curse, kind of seems to apply here. We are living in really interesting times. That's not necessarily a good thing. Okay. So I said we would talk about the Encrypt Act of 2016. Bill would ban state efforts to weaken encryption. Representatives Ted Lieu, Democrat of California, and Blake Feinhold, Republican of Texas, are challenging state-level proposals to restrict Americans' ability to encrypt their phones. They say states shouldn't preempt Congress and the White House by legislating against encryption while a national debate is ongoing. Lou, one of four members of Congress with a computer science degree, partnered with Fairhold, a member of both the House Oversight and House Judiciary Committees, to introduce a bill on Wednesday, the Encrypt Act of 2016, that would stop states from individually trying to make companies change their technology to suit law enforcement needs. New York District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. is one of many law enforcement officials arguing that their ability to obtain evidence on criminals' devices, most often cell phones, is becoming impossible because only the owner of that device can unlock it. Not even the company holds on to a copy of the passcode. FBI Director James Comer, the man who thinks that computer science is a fictional work and you can just write any sort of outcome into it you want, <clears throat> said during a Senate Intelligence Committee hearing on Tuesday that locked phones are overwhelmingly affecting local law enforcement. But technologists are practically unanimous in agreeing that forcing technology companies to provide anything less than some sort of backdoor so law enforcement can access unencrypted communications leads to undue risk that criminal hackers will be able to abuse those new vulnerabilities. Lou, in an interview, said law enforcement should be more concerned about its own cybersecurity practices than about limiting what's available to the public. When the Department of Justice and the FBI were hacked, it put the rest of the notion to rest the notion of having a backdoor in encryption, Lou said, referring to this week's hacker release of DOJ and DHS employee records. The new bill, supported by the Apps Association, the Nishakin Center, the Internet Technology Industry Council, and the Internet Association comes on the heels of two proposed state-level bills in California and New York attempting to ban certain types of phone encryption. The New York bill, first proposed last year and reintroduced in January, would require all smartphones sold in New York be capable of being decrypted either by the manufacturer or the owners of the operating system. A California legislator followed suit, introducing a bill to outlaw the sale of phones with full disk encryption, which makes it impossible to access the contents without the passcode. Legal and technological experts have said the two bills are unlikely to pass as is because they're flawed, possibly impossible to implement, and potentially illegal. 
but the New York proposal could come up for a vote this year and has support from Vance. States shouldn't make that call, the congressman argue. As Congress explores the appropriate response to encryption technology, a new and destabilizing front has opened as state legislators have taken measures into their own hands, Owen Feinhold wrote in a letter to their colleagues in Congress. We are concerned that a patchwork system with different encryption requirements in every state would not only undermine national security, but also threaten the competitiveness of American companies and dampen innovation. Brian Hagerman, a technology and civil liberties poly policy analyst for the Libertarian Meshachin Center, wrote in an email to The Intercept, that's where this is from, that federal preemption makes sense in this case. The Encrypt Act won't put a nail in the coffin of the ongoing encryption debate, but will help forestall some of the bad legislation that we see coming out of states like California and New York. Adding to the complexity of this debate, debate by permitting a schizophrenic patchwork of legal regimes at state level is not a good policy prescription. Yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> but then, New York and California, they tend to lead the nuttiness. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they're going to bring in laws for no encryption. Great, so everybody just buys their smartphone out of state. Yeah. Well, the police won't know until they arrest somebody. <laughs> then what are they going to do? Yeah. You you've got an illegal device. Oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> Damn, how did that happen? Yeah. I don't but they're just they're they have magical thinking when it comes to this stuff. They oh, and by that, the way, you can yes. still freely buy point to point encrypted radios anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. They're talking about encrypted storage so yeah criminals and terrorists just go back to using radios rather than phones <laughs> <laughs> it's like you really haven't thought this through guys <laughs> well they're fan they have magical thinking problems and and that's that's one thing i've noticed that you know our legislators have in common with the tobacco control people with the, the, you know, the nanny state, don't let your kids play out in the yard people. They all have this magical thinking. Something terrible is going to happen and the sky is going to fall and only we have the answer. No, that's not true. The sky hasn't fallen yet. Um, you know, and bad things do happen. It doesn't matter whether you can wave a magic wand and de-encrypt a phone. Bad things are always going to happen, and good things are always going to happen, and legislators are going to go on doing what they do, which is basically passing feel-good legislation that makes them look like heroes to someone, I guess. The, the best Not. thing is, um, it was mentioned in there, the FBI and DOJ <laughs> hack. Apparently, yeah. British teenagers. Yay! That's who apparently took part in that hack. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, they, did you... they're they're gonna legislate that teenagers aren't allowed near computers. Well, then that, they would that, have to that... go outside and play. And who yeah. wants to supervise teenagers at play? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just think it's ridiculous. It's uh, it's ridiculous. Um, oh, you know, I was gonna say. It'd be mm -hmm. nice if people like the FBI 
and Department of Justice. Be nice if they used proper encryption stuff on, then they wouldn't get hacked. Because yeah, <laughs> a really, really well encrypted phone or computer system mm -hmm. will have a backup somewhere. Mm -hmm. So if a hacker breaks into the live system, mm -hmm. the the encryption on the device will mm -hmm. blanket rather than let the hacker steal data. Oh, but well, they don't we, use that in any of these departments when they're claiming, oh, we're super secure. Yeah. <laughs> we don't believe in that. Um, you can get that IRS. for your smartphone. There's apps for that. If your <laughs> phone gets stolen, it'll basically wipe itself right. on command. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. People, I'm sure criminals have been doing this mm -hmm. when they get arrested which must really piss off police. Because, yeah. Probably what I was going. If they bring in laws blocking encryption, that's what the criminals will do. I mean, they're they're on a lose-lose with this stuff. What I was going to say is the IRS also got hacked this week and a whole bunch of taxpayer data got stolen. Yeah. So just FYI, I guess everybody should be making sure that their identities weren't stolen <laughs> during this hack. Um, and it, it seems to be happening fairly frequently now where they're targeting government computer systems, which it, it's almost a joke. It's like it's the been constant since the 80s, basically. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, um, back when I was learning in school, not even university. Mm -hmm. There was the stuff about a bunch of German school kids who'd hacked NASA and had uh, launch control over the shuttle. <laughs> That's kind they of didn't funny. launch it, fiercely, but <laughs> they could have. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's a game that's been going on for a long time. And it isn't going to stop. No. Maybe if it were safe for kids to play outside on their own, you wouldn't see bored teenagers hacking into government computer systems and almost launching ships into space. I don't know. Just no, it'd know. still happen. I, I had a very active outdoor life. Um, <laughs> and spent a lot of time on computers. So, yeah. It's easier now. You can have a tablet and be outside. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually true um so i know we talked a little bit about samsung <laughs> yeah so i i thought i would touch base on the whole smart tv thing again samsung warns customers not to discuss personal information in front of smart tvs samsung has confirmed that its smart tv sets are listening to customers every word and the company is warning customers not to speak about personal information while near the TV sets. The company revealed that the voice activation feature on its smart TVs will capture all nearby conversations. The TV sets can share the information, including sensitive data with Samsung, as well as third-party services. The news comes after Shane Harris at the Daily Beast pointed out a troubling line in Samsung's privacy policy. Please be aware that if your spoken words include personal data or other sensitive information, that information will be among the data captured and transmitted to a third party. 
Samsung has now issued a new statement clarifying how the voice activation feature works. If a consumer consents and uses the voice recognition feature, voice data is provided to a third party during a requested voice command search, Samsung said in a statement. At that time, the voice data is sent to a server, which searches for the requested content, then returns the desired content to the TV. The company then added, it does not retain or sell the voice data, but it didn't name the third party that translates the user's speech. Samsung had, um, on the 10th, they updated their privacy policy again, and they named the third party company in question, which is Nuance Communications Incorporated. Nuance is a um, well-known speech recognition company. Mm -hmm. been around for a long, long time. Yeah, uh, well... I have to say, none of the technology I've owned over the years that's capable of voice recognition have I actually felt the need to have voice recognition turned on. Mainly because, being of a Scottish persuasion, it tends <laughs> just not to work. And I don't even have a very strong accent. No. No, but I, I don't know. I, I can't help thinking. Do you remember when we talked about that company that was chipping their employees' hands? So when they went through the line at the cafeteria, they didn't have oh, to yeah, pay. Yeah. They could just wave their hand. Okay. Sweden, was it? Yeah, yeah, it was somewhere in Sweden. But um, it just seems, voice recognition just seems like that to me. It's like everything we do with the computer is very, very, very easy, right? And everything yeah. we do with a smartphone is very, very easy, but you want to make it so easy that you have to put forth absolutely no effort, just the effort to speak. I don't know. It just seems like a shortcut through laziness, and then you're just giving away so much more of your privacy. It's just... For after the show, I've got a link for people okay. to uh, a video from Berniston. It was a comedy sketch show. <laughs> Scottish guys in a voice activated elevator um, it, it's, it, it's been a big hit on YouTube but it keeps getting redone every time voice recognition um, makes the headlines you just have these two Scottish guys trying to get the lift to work <laughs> and yeah, yeah none of it works for Scottish people um, so we'll probably be fine in front of Samsung TVs uh, except why would we activate the system which isn't going to work for us anyway <laughs> yeah I don't know so um, I do, when I get a new smartphone or whatever, I do try it out but it never seems to work properly so it gets turned back off again usually uninstalled I've never used voice recognition on anything or fucking reviews. Well, Not that that the only use any. it might have is if you're talking on a headset and you need to do voice dialing. But other no. than that, you don't nope. really need it for anything on a phone. Nope. Uh, you nope. can have all your I... numbers on speed dial. I mean, jeez. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. Um, so I said we would talk about iWash. This is what iWash is. Okay. I and you'll you'll understand it when I read you the story, but I watched how the CIA deceives its own workforce about operations. 
senior CIA officials have for years intentionally deceived parts of the agency workforce by transmitting internal memos that contain false information about operations and sources overseas, according to current and former U.S. officials who said the practice is known by the term eyewash. Agency veterans describe the tactic as infrequent but important security measure, a means of protecting vital secrets by inserting fake communications into routine cable traffic while using separate channels to convey accurate information to cleared recipients. But others cited a significant potential for abuse. Beyond the internal distrust implied by the practice, officials said there is no clear mechanism for labeling eyewash cables or distinguishing them from legitimate records being examined by the CIA's inspector general, turned over to Congress, or declassified for historians. Senate investigators uncovered apparent cases of eyewashing as part of a multi-year probe of the CIA's interrogation program, according to officials who said that the Senate Intelligence Committee found glaring inconsistencies in CIA's communications about classified operations, including two drone strikes. At least two eyewashing cases are cited in the classified version of the committee's final report, according to officials who have reviewed the document. In one instance, leaders at a CIA headquarters sent a cable to the agency's station in Pakistan, saying operators there were not authorized to pursue a potentially lethal operation against an alleged al-Qaeda operative known as Abu Abu Zabata, but a second set of instructions sent to a smaller circle of recipients told them to disregard the other message and that the mission could proceed. The people in the outer levels who didn't have insider access were being lied to, said a U.S. official familiar with the report. They were being intentionally deceived. The CIA's mission regularly involves carrying out operations that are designed to deceive foreign governments and other adversaries, but officials said eyewashing is fundamentally different in that it is aimed at an internal audience, sowing misinformation among the agency's rank and file. Even among CIA veterans, there are significant gaps in their awareness and understanding of eyewashing. Five former high-ranking CIA officials, including several who worked in the general counsel or inspector general's offices, said they had never heard the term or encountered the practice of using internet, um, I'm sorry, internal communications to mislead agency employees. Fred Hitz, who served as the CIA's inspector general from 1990 to 1998, said that intentionally deceiving agency employees seemed fraught with risk. Someone who's not clued in could take action on the basis of false information, Hitz said, it's really playing with fire. But others said that eyewashing was the standard security practice that had been in existence for decades. It is just another form of compartmentalization, said a former U.S. intelligence official, referring to the restriction of sensitive information to select recipients. He said others spoke on the condition of anonymity, citing the sensitivity of the subject, quote, the classic use of an eyewash is if you have a garden variety source and all of a sudden he gains access to truly sensitive information, the former official said. What you might have to do is a false communication saying the guy got hit by a bus and died. A large number of people aware of this source suddenly think he's dead. But the continuing reporting on that source and from that source gets put into a very closed compartment that very few know about. The former official described eyewashing as relatively rare, saying that a during a career that spanned more than two decades, he had only seen maybe five or six eyewash cables sent. Federal law makes it a criminal offense when a government employee conceals, covers up, falsifies, or makes a false entry in an official record. Legal experts said they know of no special exemption for the CIA, nor any attempt to prosecute agency officials for alleged violations. The CIA declined to comment. I'm sure every Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it has been 
being done for a long, long time. It originates with the um, Department of Dirty Tricks, the British yeah. government in World War Two. They started this <laughs> shit. <laughs> well, but no, they did I... it during a time of world war, and they knew Hitler was intercepting <laughs> some of their communications, so they're deliberately planting false information. Right. And yeah, only if you knew which bits of information were the fake ones. Right. But that was during full-scale, all-out war, not standard operating practice. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know. Okay. So that has to make you wonder about the state that you're living in, right? The, yeah. the state, the state of the world, where the CIA feels like it needs to. And the story goes on much longer than this. I wanted to stop it, mostly because I didn't really want to read the rest of it, and because. Um, I think it's important to think about just what that says. The CIA does stuff no one else can do. And they have tons of employees. And yet the people that work there can't be trusted by other people who work there. Yep. That's fantastic. Isn't it nice to know your government agencies are paranoid? Ugh, they're, they're super paranoid. Yeah. I mean, and they're paranoid about people that work in their own agency and don't you have to don't you have to pass some sort of you have to be able to be able to be cleared to get like top secret document access for certain levels yeah. and in certain jobs and, and that might be even something as simple as an outside accountant. So you have to be found trustworthy by these people, but and there's ongoing assessment to make sure you you don't get turned. So yeah, it's it's amazing. It is just amazing that this this goes on, this goes on, and it doesn't stop. So you know we talked about um, phones and encryption. Okay, so this one's kind of cool. Law enforcement encryption claims overblown study finds. The surge in internet-connected devices will offer, offer ample new surveillance opportunities, according to a Harvard study. Encryption may not protect criminals as much as we have been led to believe. The FBI and other law enforcement authorities are exaggerating the extent that criminals are using encryption to avoid surveillance or go dark, according to a study released Monday by Harvard. The study, which included participation from current and former intelligence officials, found that myriad new internet-connected technologies, such as smart home products, allow new opportunities for surveillance activities. The going dark metaphor does not fully describe the future of the government's capability to access the communications of suspected terrorists and criminals, said the study, published by Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. So hang on, let me pop this in the chat for anybody who's interested. Okay. The report con conceded that the increased availability of encryption products impedes government surveillance under certain circumstances. 
but it also concluded that the burgeoning market for internet-connected devices will likely fill some of these gaps and ensure that the government will gain new opportunities to gather critical information from surveillance. The study's findings come amid a mounting war of words between tech companies and policymakers who contend that terrorist groups are benefiting from encryption, the technology that jumbles communications and files so that only the intended recipient can read them. Tech companies have become increasingly diligent about including encryption in products and services in the wake of revelations about the U.S. government surveillance programs from documents leaked by former NSA contractor Edward Snowden. Apple's iMessage text message program uses encryption, as does Facebook's WhatsApp. Google, Yahoo, and a bunch of other tech companies have begun scrambling information sent between their servers. These security features, which aim to keep prying eyes from seeing what's going on inside, are often now turned on by default and easy to use. After deadly attacks in Paris late last year, questions arose about whether the technology industry has a duty to help the government view encrypted conversations in the name of stopping terrorism. Tech companies have encountered that it's impossible to let government agencies break encryption without letting criminals do the same. The Harvard study predicted that a host of internet-connected devices, including TVs, cars, cameras, thermostats, and even toasters, compact with sensors and wireless connectivity that offer new opportunities for tracking suspects. Law enforcement or intelligence agencies may start to seek orders compelling Samsung, Google, Mattel, Nest, or vendors of other network devices to push an upgrade or flip a digital switch to intercept the ambient communications of a target, the study said. These are real products now. The plethora of internet-connected devices also raises difficult questions about consumer privacy that need to be addressed, the study suggested. We should be thinking about, now, the responsibilities of companies building new technologies, about new operational procedures and roles to help law enforcement and intelligence communities navigate the thicket of issues that will surely accompany these trends, the study concluded. The FBI did not respond to a request for comment on the study. Yeah. Maybe that's why VTech have such shitty security on their devices. They're actually not creating normal kids' toys. They're making devices so the FBI could listen to people. <laughs> Great. VTech, internet-connected Barbie, surveillance <laughs> for, for mafia kids only? <laughs> yeah, possibly. That's, you know, Just I would say that's far-fetched, you know. but it's not. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're right. I mean... A lot of these devices now that are wireless, internet connected, phones, yes, they have a lot of encryption built in, but yeah, the smart fridges, toasters, all the rest of the stuff, don't. So yeah, um, the, the one that's always impressive is the washing machines with microphones in them. I was just going to say that. You have guys building them going, well, for some reason, we now put microphones in, in washing these machines. washing machines. Oh, yeah. And there's no voice recognition commands or anything <laughs> in the washing yeah. machine. So why does it have a microphone? <laughs> you know, and, and the thing is, when you tell people that, they think you're nuts. But if you Let's, get somebody yeah. who works for one of these companies bring you home because there's internal schematics schematics yeah. 
of a washing machine, you get somebody who works for Maytag or whatever to bring you home one of those, you'll see where the microphone is. Yeah, they're they're um, on the circuit board. Mm-hmm. Easy to spot. Condenser microphones are very yep. small, after all. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just That's just an interesting aside, you know, and... 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, you'd tell somebody this and they would think you're crazy. Not so much anymore. You know, now it's well, just not... I've mentioned it before, but one of the... One of the things I, I liked when watching The Good Wife is the stuff to do with the uh, NSA and spying. Where, you know, they've... They're listening to somebody's mobile phone mm -hmm. and the microphone's so sensitive they can hear people 10 feet away and identify yeah. what they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Because yeah. they got some really good tech for filtering out the noise. But, uh, yeah, the good wife stuff on the yeah. eavesdropping and wiretaps. Hilarious. You know... And not as far from the truth as... The FBI and the like would like you to believe. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, actually, every year, the Chaos Computer Club, Yeah. I believe that's their name, they put on a pretty interesting conference every year. And in every year, you'll find like a bunch of videos after the event has stopped. And some are in English and some aren't. But um, a lot of them are about how you can protect yourself from this kind of surveillance. And yeah. what it tells me is like non, super non-techie people, they're screwed. They're <laughs> just yeah. kind of screwed. Um, other people who have a little bit of technical knowledge can do a little bit more. But I really think when people see how much of their information is just leaked, like all over the place, it's just kind of like a snail is walking around just, you know, with that, that not walking around, but crawling around with that ooze that's coming off it. It's like yeah. all your information. Well, the one that gets me, forget all the smart TVs <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. The one I find interesting is mm -hmm. the light bulbs. You can now get bulbs for your house that you control yeah. with your smartphone. So you're on your way home. And you can go on the internet and turn the lights on for when you get home. Um, yeah, yeah but some of those have microphones in as well. Well, yeah, but they've also got IP addresses and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm not comfortable. See, when you, you... All right. The max amount of unique identifiable IP addresses that one home can have for all their devices is 205. And what some people are finding who are buying like that fucking Echo thing, which we will never have in this house, the Amazon Echo, because um, people are buying stuff to hook up to Echo. So they can yeah. say, you know, Andromeda or whatever the hell her name is, um, you know, turn on the lights in the kitchen or whatever. People are finding out they're they're almost maxed out on devices and they're going, well, I don't understand, you know, none of this stuff is smart technology and yet, you know, their lamp's got a fucking IP address. Yeah. It's just, it, it's ridiculous. And I mean, that's just stuff I've just found just reading stuff. 
you, so, you can yeah. get more than 255 but well, you right, need to have a router that right um, but i mean yeah but that's do smart that's, routing but, right but that's yeah but what they're saying is just basic the just basic home yeah. that's all you can have so where are all these ip addresses coming from you know and <laughs> they're they're showing up for people's lamps dishwashers washing machines and toasters you know there <laughs> there is going to be i think at some point with privacy minded me people there's going to be a market for stuff like your grandparents had and repairing stuff instead of replacing it just because people don't want their toaster having an IP address or knowing what they're saying when they're standing around it. I, th I and think that's a uh, valid point. Hmm? We're not too far away. And yeah, the more paranoid people are already there <laughs> where <laughs> they'll have a new house built for themselves mm -hmm. and the whole thing will basically be a Faraday cage. cage. Now there's now but that they will still have to have probably a fiber optic line coming in for right. the internet and everything so yeah. rather than having um electromechanical mm -hmm. cables which are easily tapped yeah if you got fiber optic that's mm -hmm. a lot harder to eavesdrop yeah. on you have to mm -hmm. wait until the optical transfers back to mm -hmm. electromechanical <laughs> and yeah, people are going to do this of just so that their, all their smart technology isn't leaking information all in, all over the place. You know, when I talked about the Chaos Computer Club stuff, I, I, I mean, it, there really is a lot of informative stuff there. There's a lot of stuff you can do to protect yourself. I'm still going to recommend again to protect and infect part two. Jacob Applebaum does an amazing job of showing you these pictures of just what our NSA is using. And then there's technology that like even Glenn Greenwald really hasn't talked about. And he really should remember how we've talked before about how they can read your keystrokes. They don't even need to be within hundreds of feet of you to read your keystrokes. They have a, a certain device they can aim at your house. Yeah. Yeah. This, that last video that I'm talking about to protect and infect part two, the very last thing they talk about is the kind of radiation that government is, is beaming into homes of, I, I guess we're going to go with the word suspected terrorists to see what they're typing on their computers and what that kind of radiation can do to you. And it, it, it really is terrifying stuff. And 20 years ago, I would have said, this guy is a nut. And a nut in the vein of like an Alex Jones tinfoil hat wearing lunatic. He's not. The stuff they're talking about is real. And it's used by our governments to safeguard against terrorism. But as a consequence, innocent people are being inter you know, they're being caught up in this web too. Well, one of the funniest stories I know was um, Salisbury Plain in the UK. It's notorious for lots of military stuff goes on. But you have American air bases. Mm -hmm. And there's a guy who had a house 
that was between two of the air bases. Right. And one day he was in his house and every electrical cable, every copper wire in his house combusted. That's... This was cause, <laughs> it turned out later, the air bases had been testing a new burst data transmitter. So, to test it, they sent a signal from one airbase to the other airbase, tight focus beam, and the guy's house happened to be in the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and literally, there was that much energy in the data burst, it melted all his cabling. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that's kind of frightening. I mean, that's yeah. more than kind of frightening, that's very frightening. And, yes. you know, I wonder if the insurance companies paid for that. I stuck the link for... I think the American government paid for his house to get fixed. I would hope um, so. I stuck the link for To Protect and Infect Part 2 into the chat. This is from December 2013, so I would love to see updated information on this. So, and I'm sure it's out there. I just haven't looked for it. To protect and infect parts one, two, and three bothered me badly enough that um, <laughs> I actually went to a point where I didn't even want to go any further in yeah. knowing. So that's, um, oh, yeah, the onion. Yeah, um, the last I heard about the onion was that they'd actually found a way in, but it takes them a really long time. So the onion router does do its job. Oh, yeah. Um, But nothing is unhackable and nothing is unbreachable. You just do your best to minimize your risk. It's like computer harm reduction. As as we said, (laughs) the only thing that is completely unhackable is a completely sealed system, which is of no use to anyone. Well, (laughs) you don't even really need a completely sealed system. What you need is to, you know, quote Karl Marx, you need to have the means of production, which means you need to, from start to finish, build your own everything. And who really has the power, time, or money to do just that? That's a problem. Anyway, I didn't mean to quote Karl Marx here, guys. I'm sorry. But uh, <laughs> that's valid in this point. That's the only way you're going to have a completely protected computer system or, or any kind of system, really. Um, okay. I said we we're going to talk about what happened in the Wisconsin Supreme Court. I, I'm getting so sick of Wisconsin. I just want to go up there and just grab the politicians and smack their heads together. Yeah, Not just why the hasn't Loki the cops. just smacked them around a bit? <laughs> Not just the cops. The- the judges the cops the lawyers all the weird shit that goes on in that place i'm just i'm just and i'm amazed at the people who live there that have like no clue they're just kind of floating through life and you're going um you realize your your supreme court just set precedents for cops to do whatever the fuck they like right and they just kind of look at you all blankly and you're going how can you not know this I mean, it's it's out there, but people don't know. So for people in Wisconsin and people not in Wisconsin, here it goes. State High Court broadens police search seizure power in a 4-3 to decision. In a 4-3 to decision, 
the Wisconsin Supreme Court has yet again broadened an exception to allow police to seize and use evidence obtained from private places without the owner's consent to a search warrant. There's the link to that decision. The dissent called the majority's interpretation so broad as to, quote, swallow the Fourth Amendment, which protects against unreasonable searches and seizures. The decision Wednesday was also notable in that Justice Rebecca Bradley joined the majority that reversed the Court of Appeals, even though she had not heard arguments in the case, which occurred before her appointment on October 9 by Governor Scott Walker. She replaced Justice Patrick Cooks, who died in his chambers September 21st and is now running for election to a 10-year term against two challengers, Court of Appeal Justice Joanne Kloppenberg and Milwaukee Court, Circuit Court Judge Joseph Donald. In a dissent, Justice Shirley Abramson wrote that when Crooks died, the court had heard oral arguments but had not decided nine cases. It heard arguments in another seven after Crooks' death, but before Bradley's appointment. The court had not decided any of the 16 cases when Bradley joined the court, Abramson wrote. Since then, five of the cases have been decided, and Bradley did not participate in any of them. Having Bradley vote in Wednesday's case, Abramson said, seems inconsistent with past practice. Without Bradley's vote, the result would be 3-3, and the Court of Appeals' decision that the evidence should be suppressed would stand. No precedent appears to exist in the United States Supreme Court or in this court for a new justice who did not participate in an oral argument to participate in the case without a re-argument, she wrote. Bradley, in a later interview, said her own research found no rule or precedent to prohibit her from deciding cases argued before she was seated, or one suggesting the approach endorsed by Abramson that sitting judges should vote whether to rehear a case with a new member. It was surprising to me there isn't a procedure for this situation, she said. She said she listened to the recordings of the oral arguments and so has the same information the other justices have to make her decision. Deciding cases of statewide importance is her job, she said. The reason she did not participate in an earlier case that deadlocked 3-3 three to three regarding public records law was that it was set on a direct certification from the Court of Appeals and the tie vote only sent it back to that court for a decision. In Wednesday's case, she said that the tie would have let the Court of Appeals decision stand without any Supreme Court decision on the issue. Our opinions aren't just for parties, they become guidance to anyone who might be affected by issues statewide in the future, she said. It also sets precedent. Bradley seemed to suggest, but would not confirm or deny, that she intends to participate in some other cases that were argued to the court before she joined. I can't talk about pending cases, she said. The case decided Wednesday involved a Kenosha police action in 2012. Police action, Jesus Christ. They called Vietnam a police action, too. <clears throat> Officers went to Charles Maltonin's house to investigate a possible beating of his brother, who was found bloodied in a nearby residence. Maltonis refused to grant officers permission to enter a locked bedroom. The officers said they would break the door down if Malonis did not produce the key. At some point, officers found the key, entered the room, and found evidence of a marijuana-growing operation. Malonis was charged with manufacture of marijuana and moved to suppress the evidence. The Court of Appeals agreed the search was unreasonable, but writing for the Supreme Court majority, Justice Annette Ziegler found that police were not investigating a crime but exercising their community caretaker function by checking to make sure no other injured people were in the house. 
Justice David Prosser, often seen as part of the court's conservative bloc, has repeatedly joined Abramson and Justice Ann Bradley in dissents that support more limits on community caretaker exemption to getting a search warrant. He wrote the main dissent, again joined by Abramson and Ann Bradley, who is not related to Rebecca Bradley. Prosser observed that by the time officers entered the locked room, some 20 minutes or more after they had been in the house, there was little reason to suspect someone else was in the bedroom, but plenty of reason to suspect it might house marijuana. The majority's embrace of a broad, ever-expanding version of the exemption risks transforming a shield for evidence encountered incidental to community caretaking into an investigatory sword. Yeah. Kiss your Fourth Amendment rights goodbye. Because once there's precedence, goes everywhere. That's the problem with legality. Yeah, and the whole new justice thing. Yeah, she should be able to vote on cases, but not straight away. They should have to delay the vote. Um, she says she heard all the evidence. Right. But, yeah, we've only got our word for it. True. <laughs> you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm really unhappy with that. When you gut the Fourth Amendment, uh, that's the, I'm more about that than anything else. You have the right to privacy. You have the right to digital privacy. You have the right to privacy in your home. And you have the right to not consent to a search. Yeah. You know, basically, you're just saying, well, fuck it, you live there. You pay property tax, you know, your home is just open to the cops to just breeze through and look for whatever they like and arrest you if they feel like it. It's well, just... yeah, certain types of police, not all of them, love stretching the rules. Well, you no, know, you know, I, and you get I... traffic cops that pull cars over because they suspect it's been stolen. Not that they know it's stolen. It's like, oh, that doesn't look like that driver matches that vehicle. <laughs> so I'll engineer this idea to pull them over and then hopefully they'll get an arrest. Um, it's, it's insane. Well, yes, it's insane. Yes, it happens. I guess, you know, even that... There's a limited amount of privacy you have in an open space, but in your home. Yeah. My God, it's your home. Whether you rent it, whether you're living with somebody else, whether you own it, whether it's a trailer, whether it's a shack in the freaking woods. That's your home, you know? The invasion of that, I don't know. It's just like saying you have no rights at all. Well, you at see... All. What, what enterprising individuals should do in Wisconsin is find some sympathetic policeman. Uh, that isn't going to be easy. <laughs> to go and start searching justices' houses. <laughs> well. We had a complaint uh, that this property, and, and then see what the justices think. Because that seems to be a way of it. Mm -hmm. They don't care because it's not affecting them. 
But yeah. once it does start affecting them, the team yeah, changes. See what quickly. they think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I said we were going to talk about. I can hear my voice getting stuffy. I wonder if I'm going to start getting sick. <clears throat> I said we were going to talk about a company called D Stillery. Okay, and in the way I wrote it, D Stillery is absolutely correct. How this company tracked 16,000 Iowa caucus goers via their phones. On Thursday morning, I listened to an interview with the CEO of a big data intelligence company called Distillery. It quote unquote demystifies consumers' online footprints to target them with ads. The CEO told public radio program Marketplace something astounding. His company had sucked up the mobile device IDs from the phones of Iowa caucus goers to match them with their online profiles. We watched each of the caucus locations for each party and we collected mobile device IDs, Distillery CEO Tom Phillips said. It's a combination of data from the phone and data from other digital devices. Distillery found some interesting things about voters. For one, people who love to grill or work on their lawns overwhelmingly voted for Trump in Iowa, according to Phillips. Yeah, but that, that can't be completely accurate. When I heard this, I wondered how the company was doing this. Did they have employees at all the caucus locations holding phone sniffing devices? The idea that phone-toting people could walk up to vote and immediately have their real-world identities matched with a profile based on their digital trail would indeed be, as Marketplace headlined its piece, a new frontier in voter tracking. But that's not how it works. The pairing of caucus-goers with their online footprints was more roundabout than that, explained a distillery spokesperson by email. What really happened is distillery gets its information from people's phones via ad networks. When you open an app or look at a browser page, there's a very fast auction that happens where different advertisers bid to get to show you an ad. That bid is based on how valuable they think you are. And to decide that, your phone sends them information about you, including in many cases, an identifying code that they've built a profile around and your location information down to your latitude and longitude. Yes, for the vast majority of people, ad networks are doing far more information collection about them than the NSA, but they don't explicitly link it to their names. So on the night of the Iowa caucus, Distillery flagged all the auctions that took place on phones in latitudes and longitudes near caucus locations. It wound up spotting 16,000 devices on caucus night, as those people had granted location privileges to the apps or devices that served them ads. It captured those mobile IDs and then looked up the characteristics associated with those IDs in order to make observations about the kind of people that went to Republican caucus locations, young parents, versus Democrat caucus locations. It drilled down farther, e.g. people who like NASCAR voted for Trump and Clinton, by looking at which candidate won at a particular caucus location. As USA Today noted, the results are interesting if scientifically inexact. Because I think this is a fascinating look into how online and offline tracking can be combined, here's the full Q&A. Fusion. How did Distillery gather mobile IDs from phones in Iowa? Distillery. 
For most ads you see on web browsers and mobile devices, there's an auction among various programming advertising firms for the chance to show you an ad. We are one of those buyers, and we are sent a variety of anonymous data, including what kind of phone you have, what app you're using, what operating system version you're running, and sometimes, crucially for this study, your latitude and longitude. We identified the caucusing locations prior to the Iowa caucus and told our system to be on the lookout for devices that report a lot long at those locations during the caucus. So when we received an ad bid request that our system recognized as being one of the caucus sites, our system flagged that request and captured the device ID so we could use it for this. This is roughly equivalent to exit polling for the smartphone age. Fusion. How many caucus locations did it gather from? Distillery. We gathered location from across 90% of the caucus sites for both parties. Fusion. How many mobile IDs was it able to match to its database? Distillery. We identified about 16,000 devices at various caucus sites. Editors note, approximately 35,000 Iowans caucused. Fusion. What mobile ID does Distillery use for consumer tracking? Distillery. We use the anonymized advertising IDs provided by the devices themselves as identifiers in our system. Generally speaking, this means Android Advertising ID or iOS IDFA. Fusion. What's the range of information associated with the mobile ID? Distillery. The data we receive from those auction messages is fairly limited. To build out that rich information set that you are referring to, we call them crafted audiences, we need to see a device several times across many different sites. We then use some pretty sophisticated machine learning techniques to extrapolate behaviors. We can only do this because we see such a broad view of digital behavior. In other words, we know we're seeing you on sites A, B, and C means that you are likely a new mom, but seeing you on A, D, and E means you're health conscious. We have hundreds of crafted audiences, including credit checkers, wrestling fans, new movers, CEOs, and even things like DIYers and cigar aficionados and generate more crafted audiences all the time. One thing that isn't in the data is personal identifiable information. The data set and system are completely anonymous. We have no idea, for example, what your name is. All we see are behaviors, and everything we do is based on analyzing those behaviors writ large. Fusion. Does Distillery do its real-world association of mobile IDs with consumer attributes in other settings, or was this a one-off? Distillery. This application is an extension of what we do every day in our core business. Our entire mission as a company is to find the right consumer at the right time with the right message. We have to do some special setup and analysis due to caucus dynamics, but this sort of experiment, seeing things in the data no one else has before, is our bread and butter. And this, folks, is why you have ad blockers on your mobile phone. Well, yeah. Yep. Ad blocker... Yeah, there's a whole bunch of nifty stuff you can put on your phone that it might not completely de-anonymize you, but, you know, it's going to come pretty close. Or it's going to come closer than if you had left everything open. Well, I do find it funny on my smartphone when I'm using mm -hmm. apps. And I've got these big blank boxes on the apps, and that's where the adverts should be. But I'm not getting them because my phone's blocking them all. I think what I love is when I'm reading a news story... And I'm scrolling down, like the word advertisement. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, that's great. I love not seeing that stuff. But yeah, so... It is one flaw in smartphones. 
um, you basically lose all your service support because to effectively block adverts mm -hmm. you have to root your phone which breaks your warranty yeah. Um, but yeah if you don't want um, adverts it's got to be done there are apps right. that cut back on the adverts yeah. without rooting your phone but to do it properly yeah you need yeah. to block it at the operating system level mm -hmm. you know I just I found that incredibly intrusive I mean I know it doesn't really say anything but it does you know what I mean yeah I think the uh, grass cutting thing I think people see a picture of Trump and go oh yeah have to cut the lawn <laughs> you know it, don't get me wrong i think he's terrible but yeah. i don't think any of our other choices are any better i mean i like gary johnson um people who like the democrats I, I really want to tell them please 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 vote for jill stein in the green party um because i think they're a smaller party they're a newer party and the things that you care about would be better taken care of by a smaller party than a larger party that I don't know let me put it this way there was a comedian one of your lot who talked about the best thing Bill Clinton had done and he said the best thing that Bill Clinton had done was that he had very quietly turned the Democrat Party into the Republican Party and sent the right so the Republican right so far to the right that they went completely insane <laughs> and I think that's pretty accurate because I do think before the Clinton's involvement in the Democratic Party, I think it was a different party. And that's that. Uh, that that was the end of Jan on politics, I guess. Um, this is one of my favorite stories about the Spanish civil servant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's been getting Sp a lot of press. Yeah. Well, he should. My God. <laughs> I wish I could have this kind of luck. Spanish civil servant skips work for years without anyone noticing. Joaquin Garcia failed to show up at his job at the water board for at least six years and possibly as many as 14. Only when Joaquin Garcia, a Spanish civil servant, was due to collect an award for two decades of loyal and dedicated service did anyone realize he had not, in fact, shown up to work for at least six years and possibly as many as 14. Garcia, a 69-year-old engineer, began working with the local authority in southwestern city of Cadiz in 1990, according to El Mundo, and in 1996 was posted to the municipal water board, Aquia de Cadiz, where his job was to supervise a wastewater treatment plant. In 2010, when Garcia, who is now retired, was due to collect his long service medal, the man who had hired him, Deputy Mayor George B.S. Fernandez wondered where he was. He was still on the payroll, he told the paper. I thought, where is this man? Is he still here? Has he retired? Has he died? After the former manager of the water board, who had the office opposite Garcia's, told Fernandez he had not seen his employee in several years, the deputy mayor called the engineer in. I asked him, what are you doing? Fernandez said, what did you do yesterday and the previous month? He could not answer. A court this week, Find Garcia 27,000 euro, the equivalent of after tax one year of his annual salary, 
having earlier found that the engineer did not appear to have occupied his office for at least six years and had done absolutely no work between 2007 and 2010, the year before he retired. Garcia told the court he had turned up to the office, although he admitted he may have not kept regular business hours. He said he was the victim of workplace bullying because of his family's socialist politics and had been deliberately sidelined at the water board. His friends told El Mundo that the engineer had been unwilling to report his allegations of harassment because he had a family to support and was worried he would not find another job at his age. He had been so depressed by his situation that he had seen a psychiatrist, they said. The tribunal concluded that the water board believed Garcia was the responsibility of the city council for most of the period of his employment, while the city council thought he was working for the water board. The engineer made the most of the confusion, becoming an advert reader of philosophy and an expert on the works of Spinoza, the Dutch philosopher credited with laying the foundations for the Enlightenment. Yeah, he's done rather well out of it. He only lost a year's worth of money. I know. <laughs> How does that happen? It's well, crazy. A, friend, a friend who works in Germany told mm -hmm. me a brilliant story. And okay. This is even worse in some ways. He's the the company he worked for. Mm -hmm. In the canteen, every morning, he saw saw this elderly guy, right. sitting there reading a newspaper. Mm -hmm. And he'd been working there for about six months. Mm -hmm. Eventually, he was asking other people, "Where's that guy? Because I never see him do anything." Right. And they were like, "Oh yeah, that's such and such." His job um, was outsourced years ago. But due to employment law, they couldn't actually sack him, even though his job didn't exist anymore. So the guy, just to, so he could keep um, getting the salary, turned up every day just to read the newspaper, have a cup of coffee, and hang around on premises for about an hour, and then he'd go home again. I... And apparently he did that for 10 years, and there wasn't anything they could do about it. Well, I mean, you know, I can't say anything because, you know, here, not in the state, but, I mean, here in the United States, I know there are teachers who have charges against them, okay? Charges from, like, child endangerment, to molestation, whatever. And they can't be fired because of the, the teachers' unions. And they go to school every day and they sit in the teachers' lounge and they read a newspaper and they get paid for it. Yeah. They, they can't have any contact with yeah, the kids. Yeah, because if you don't turn up to work, yep. you can be dismissed. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it happens all over the world. Yeah, these it strange does. stories. People who yeah, but this get guy, paid for not working. But yeah, this one years. stood out because he didn't even show up. Yeah, um, 7 to 16 years. It's freaking crazy. You yeah. don't show up for three days here, they freaking charge you with job abandonment and fire you. But, yeah. So anyway. Yay! <laughs> so, I'm trying to think. I don't... Oh... GCHQ. <laughs> you know. Big rabbit hole. <laughs> mm, 
Yeah, you know, I, I think you're really right. When you look at Iron Man's arc reactor, it does look like the GCHQ. Yeah. Um, okay, UK Surveillance Oversight Board says it's all cool when GCHQ hacks basically anyone. This isn't a huge surprise, but the UK's Investigatory Powers Tribunal, which is sort of extremely weak oversight board, charged with making sure that the GCHQ isn't violating the law, but with no real powers over the GCHQ and a history of supporting its spying, has now said that the GCHQ's hacking of computers, networks, and phones is perfectly fine. This was in response to a challenge mounted by Privacy International. The IPT was not too concerned about GCHQ spying and even said that it's fine without naming specific targets. Rowling says GCHQ hacking warrants need not name specific individuals. It means okay to hack entire organization, government, and companies. So, yeah. GCHQ As will hack you. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we, will, we will hack you. <laughs> um, that, that would be a fun redoing of Queen, right? So, yeah, you've got to admire them, okay? As Privacy International has said in response, this appears to completely wipe out the idea that general warrants, i.e. not against named individuals' targets, are and have been unlawful. The IPT has decided that the GCHQ can use thematic warrants, which means the GCHQ can hack an entire class of property or persons, such as all phones in Birmingham. In doing so, it has upended a long-standing English common law principle that such general warrants are unlawful, allowing governments to hack places, the security and stability of the internet, and the information we exchange are at stake. This is an unfortunate decision, if not that surprising, but yet another reminder that perhaps the UK is a dangerous place for technology firms to do business these days. So, yeah. Always it's... has been, to be fair. Well, I think... I don't think there's any place on earth that's safe to do business. I mean, yeah. especially if you are involved in technology. Yeah. I mean, yeah, GCHQ is the longest running of all the governmental official hacking. Well, um, they kind of. I don't want to say. So yeah. I don't want to say they kind of taught the NSA everything they know, but they probably did. Um, you know, and considering that they're members of the Five Eyes, I'm not really surprised. You know, but that just. Well, tells I mean, you... it's people at GCHQ that designed a lot of the original telecoms infrastructure. So yeah. <laughs> All the spy agencies in the world kind of yeah. get taught stuff by them. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, yeah, Britain does do that. We have technology and will happily, for a price, let other people pay us large quantities of money to learn how to use it. No, it, Great um, history of doing it. Yeah. Well, after World War Two, all our missile, jet engine, aviation mm -hmm. technology 
we happily sold a lot to the US, uh, Russia, well, and various know, other places. I mean, you, yeah. you realize every government, and not just under like Thatcher, okay, not just under Reagan and Bush, uh, every government basically took everything that was done internally by people who were government employees and outsourced it, sold it off, created outside entities that were, you know, they're beyond our reach, right? They did this on purpose so they could get away with more and more shady stuff. They created a hollow man. So you're yelling at your Congress critter or your house member or, you know, <laughs> the president. And these people really don't have the power to run any of this stuff. Yeah. They're not what's behind it. I mean, and... I really hate to add credence to Eisenhower because in a lot of ways he was, he was, um, he was interesting, but, um, in a lot of ways he was absolutely right about the building of a military industrial complex and yeah. you see the consequences before your eyes. I know a lot of people who deal with very sensitive government information who don't really work for the government. And I mean, these are people I just know, you know, like, I work with their mom, and they work at this place here and for this company. And they can't really say a lot about what they do, but, you know, some of the stuff they do has to do with targeting for drones. Yeah. You know, I, these are just people that I know from here and there, out in the real world. Well, I've talked to you about it before. But the company that worries me is um, BOE Systems. Yeah. The lovely British defence contractor who basically take care of a lot of that outsourcing mm -hmm. um, for many, many governments. And you're like, are they really fully compartmentalising? all the information from the different governments or is it just going into one big, one big central database you know and and the terrifying part is um the government talks about how someone like edward snowden needs to be charged with treason okay well right but these were your decisions to take and give an outside contractor this kind of power you know what I mean? At least if it were a government employee, you know, like Chelsea Manning, you could do something about it, right? I mean, you can still do something about it because it's considered treason, even though the information revealed to us was about us and we're not actually considered an enemy combatant yet. So it really shouldn't be a problem, but it is. This whole thing is so twisted and trying to untangle how everything's kind of wrapped together. It's it's kind of like you threw spaghetti in a pot, you turned it on to cook, you never stirred it. It's all just kind of clumped together and congealed and it's a really ugly mess. And I don't know if there's a way out of it. Well, Michael Morris in chat there has um, brought up the interesting point. Yeah, they shouldn't be allowed 
to outsource stuff when it comes to certain security. Um, that's one reason why the UK still has GCHQ. Right. Because they didn't want third-party contractors dealing with all their spying. <laughs> yeah, but give Theresa May time. If she can save some money, you know. Like yeah, she's, she's not going to go up against them. Oh, well, GCHQ no. will destroy her. Well, <laughs> probably, but I'm just saying, you know, look at what she's done to the police over there. Yeah, the police aren't, you know, no, anywhere near serious. No, but still, I mean, they're basically, most of their work is being outsourced to an outside contractor. And, and most people who aren't involved in UK politics or don't know anything about living in the UK, they don't know that. Yeah. The police force are arrests and prisoner transports. I mean, it's not even done by the cops anymore. No. It's Group done four. by an outside contractor. Group four, who <laughs> were contracted to provide security for the Olympics and then didn't have enough employees to do it. So the army had to. That, Step up. That should have lost Group four all its government contracts but of course that's not how things work so they're still happily raking in money mm -hmm. um, there was something I did want to mention um, Congress today is the last day you can comment on the Trans-Pacific Par Partnership um, I don't know that it makes a big deal but there's like three different dockets, I suppose, you can comment on. So it's, um, it's pretty interesting. Um, it's, it's some, it's pretty heinous stuff is going to happen when that gets passed. I mean, governments are finally going to allow all sorts of control that they might still have to be wrested from them. Yeah. It's going to be taken away. And if a corporation doesn't like a safety rule, it can turn around and sue the government that's made that safety rule. If something causes them to lose money, they can sue your government and get money from them for it. So it's yeah. basically a massive deregulation planet-wide. And that kind of... Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm all for... I'm all go-go anarchy here. All right? And I have been for a really long time. But... There's anarchy that I think of, which is kind of like the things I see happening in Detroit, right? The mower gang, um, some of the art installation things that are opening in, you know, neighborhoods that are just basically fucking wrecked by the urban decay, um, 
things like that to me are, are anarchy cooperatives that that spring up around this sort of nothing to care for the people that are there that's that's kind of anarchy to me this stuff is madness this is basically going to take us and put us on par with third world countries so that means your wages are going to go way down your standard of living is going to go way down um everything you pretty much value in life is just going to go way down to some sub third world standards that no one deserves to have to live with you well, know the one that gets me is people already think there's problems in the food chain <laughs> once this passes and craft nestle are signatories yeah, you think we've got problems with the food now? Wait so until this wait, starts wait, going through. Wait until the drugs. You think Pharma Douche Bro was bad? Wait. Yeah. You're sick? You're dying? Fuck you. This stuff yeah, is pretty Craft Nestle. This stuff is Huge terrible. companies. Huge. Make this any other is, companies look tiny. This stuff is terrible, you guys. I'm just throwing that out there. So, you know, whatever. But, uh, yeah. I don't know. And and possibly, like, the worst part of this, the, the only part that would have made this semi-tolerable would have been they didn't have a carve-out for tobacco companies, right? So that would have maybe kind of helped the vapor industry out a little bit. And then the nannies went nuts. And demanded that be added in. Yep. So, you know, that was going to be the only part that was going to make the TTP semi-freaking tolerable. It's not. I mean, and what is going on with Richard Branson and the NHS? Oh, who the hell knows? I don't understand. I will say, at least it's Branson and not one of the other, one of the other um, megalomaniac nutters. At least he actually seems to give a shit about a lot of the stuff he does where a lot of the corporate chiefs don't give a shit um, so that's about the only bonus in it um, <laughs> you know he is quite ethical as far as businessmen go mm -hmm. so it could have been a lot worse but it's still shocking you know it's just kind of it's kind of crazy. For people that don't know, that's um, John is referencing um, Virgin has taken over child services recently yes. in a large English county and already has contracts for I think it's five others. So you yeah. know, there's there's something kind of weird. And kind of creepy when government and large businesses do this. And the actual technical definition of that is fascism. That is the actual technical definition. And it might not be bad because it's Richard Branson. Things might improve. Things might run better. It's still fascism. You know, that collusion between the government and private entities. 
the same sort of thing when they talk about what the deep state is. When Mike Lofgren talks about what the deep state is, it's the government colluding with private industry to allow the private industry to have more control over what the government is supposed to control. It's, it's a really, it's a really screwy system. And it's not generally speaking how things are supposed to work. I'm no fan of government. But all of this, everything you see happening now is just a sign that the system is broken. Not just here, not just where you live, Harry, but it's broken everywhere. Yeah. Because if the system actually worked, something like the TTP never would have passed. And I also think it's kind of sad, as crazy as outside third-party candidates sounded in the 80s and 90s when they told us that once free trade agreements were signed, there was going to be the slow sucking sound of jobs moving south. We didn't listen. Should have maybe listened to people who were in large industries who would benefit from that. Not everything they had to say was worthwhile, but that that was worth noting and, and filing away and standing up and taking notice of and letting the people who were at that point sort of in charge know that you didn't want it. Although we've gone so far past it now. I think people are starting to get the idea that maybe in a lot of ways, certain things that they want don't count. Look at what happened with the banks in America. I remember yelling at my Congress critter in person. No, do not bail these fuckers out. Let them fail, just like anybody else. You rise and you fall on your decisions. You take the same risks. You should get the exact same bailout I get. Zero. And I know millions of people said the same things to their Congress critters' face. And the bank still got bailed out with our money. So it's just... I don't know. That that was the big sign that there were problems. Well, with the TPP and mm -hmm. the TIPP, is it? Yes. Yeah. T -T -I is... It's the TTIP, the trans... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the one for Europe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is still being held up. Probably not enough brown envelopes gone around yet. Right. Um, yeah, once these are complete, basically this is the complete outsourcing of your government. Your politicians yes. really won't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. It is down to your old dystopian future that we're going to be run by the mega corporations. Detroit will become real Robocop, probably. <laughs> um, you know. The Omni Corporation. Yeah. You know. The sad part about that is I have a 93% chance of being replaced by a robot in the next 15 years. 93% chance. My job, gone. Um, so what am I going to do with my time? Well, you know, I actually want to learn cybersecurity, which sounds hysterical when you think about it. But there's something about 
going to work and knowing you're making something safer that just sounds good to me. That sounds like something fun and something I would like to do and, and be a part of, make a difference. But, you know, the idea that people who worked hard all their lives um, and made a sort of compact, the company they worked for, right? And that company paid them a living wage and they were able to support their families on it. That is gone. That no longer exists. There is no job like that anymore. There is nothing like that anymore. And oh, just in, uh, also, yes. just in keeping with the dystopian future thing. Oh, good God. Happy birthday, <laughs> Pris. <laughs> yeah, it was her birthday, wasn't it? Yep, it's her inception date today. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of dystopian horror, <laughs> <laughs> I have one. Because, you know, I am a Luddite, I guess. So I'm a Luddite, I'm an anarchist. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, so let me grab this one and it's down. See, there, these show notes go on for like 30, 40 pages. And I didn't write this. Think this came? I don't think it came from Ars Technica. It might have. Yeah, Ars Technica. Robots destroying our jobs, our economy, and possibly the world. Ethicists and computer engineers discuss the dark side of AI. The past decade or so has seen some spectacular advances in artificial intelligence, but as is so often the case with emerging technologies, is there a dark side to this brave new world? That was the topic for discussion by a panel of computer scientists and ethicists at this year's meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. There is no denying the impact of the information technology revolution on our economy. From the time that personal computers started infiltrating the workplace, there have been impressive gains in productivity. But at the same time, there's been an uncoupling of the traditional link between productivity and employment. Unlike in years past, the benefits derived here have not been felt by many or even most in a society. That was the central message from Moshe Vod's talk. A professor of computational engineering at Rice University, Vardy said, technology has been destroying jobs since the Industrial Revolution. One only needs to look at the role of horses in transportation as an example. But in the past, those jobs have been taken by machines designed to do a specific thing, like weaving cotton. Now, Vardy argued, we're facing the possibility of machines that may be better than humans at nearly everything. Vardy raised the concerning possibility that an over-reliance on automation and AI could have the same effect on our economy as the Romans' dependence on slaves. Can our economic system deal with labor participation rates below 25%? below 50%, he asked. The solution agent, ancient Rome, he pointed out, was the bread and circuses or life as a legionary. Getting ahead of that problem now before the technology becomes entrenched, known as the Collindridge dilemma, is extremely important, according to Yale ethicist Wendell Wallach. Wallach explored the topic of robot morals in his talk, calling for the field of robotics to spend a proportion of its research funds on studying the ethical, legal, and social implications, ELSI, 
of the technology in much the same way as the field of genomics. Since the beginning of the Human Genome Project through today, the National Human Genome Research Institute has a federal mandate to devote 5% of its budget on ELSI research. We need to intervene in concerted ways to shape emerging technology to prevent it from becoming a dangerous master, Wallach argued. Autonomous cars give us a good example. In recent months, there has been much discussion of self-driving cars and what's known as the trolley problem. This is a sort of automotive Kobayashi Maru, where an autonomous car encounters a problem with no good outcomes, crashing into a group of toddlers and saving its occupants, or crashing into a tree to save the toddlers, killing the occupants. Wallach thought it would be a rare problem and no one with no obvious ethical answers. Driving is not a boundedly moral activity, he said, rather a social practice. While it's a question that has been vexing many, none of the industry experts that we've challenged with it in recent months have had any possible solutions. Most have told us that sensor technology is still a decade or more from discerning whether the object to avoid is a bus packed with children or a tractor trailer. Ethicists and social theorists should be embedded in design teams, Walsh told the audience, and researchers and engineers ought to consider what or who is responsible if anything goes wrong with the systems they design. An important line in the sand needs to be a ban on developing autonomous weapon systems, a call that we reported on last year. Machines must not make decisions which result in the death of humans, Bullich said, referring specifically to AI or robots programmed to choose their own targets on a battlefield, as opposed to a self-driving car in the trolley problem. Machines programmed to kill en masse are mala and si, Walsh argued. Machines are unpredictable, cannot be fully controlled, and attribution of responsibility is difficult if not impossible. They would undermine the foundational ethical principle that a human agent, whether individual or corporate, is responsible and accountable for an action, and battlefields of autonomous weapons run the very real risk of removing any last remaining shreds of humanity from the practice of war. Encouragingly, Wallach believes the AI community is broadly on board with his ideas, recognizing that society will not look on potential Miles Dysons with a problem. Yeah. Uh-huh. There already are autonomous <laughs> war machines. Shall we say? You know, I just like I said, I've I don't know when I became a Luddite, which is funny, but um, I think it was probably when I looked and saw my career choice was like going to be gone, because the only reason anybody takes a fucking job in the food industry is because it'll be there tomorrow, not because they like it, not because they love it, but because they have a family to feed and take care of, bills to pay. You don't want to live on the fucking streets. Trust me when I tell you nobody involved in the food industry is in love with it. <laughs> well, some are exactly. for a little while, uh, but not long term, no. Anyone who says they are, uh, yeah, ask them again every few months. See what they say. See what they say after 15 years. Yeah, I can tell you some stories. Not well, fun. I say I, I managed like about 11 years. 
Yeah. <laughs> After 15, it's just, you're just like, oh, God, I don't even want to go to work. <laughs> but, um, you know, bills to pay, miles to feed, all that fun stuff. I don't know. Yeah, I, the only one I've got to watch out for is uh, AI that can do sarcasm properly. <laughs> I don't then, know. You know. I, I think having a paranoid robot would be fun, though. I'm just saying. You know, <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I was really sad when he died. <clears throat> well, Not I still think of the original portrayal from the radio yeah. shows. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Is there anything else? Is there anything you want to talk about? I mean, I think I covered everything I said I was going to. Oh, there's the happy birthday thing. Okay. All right. So, this is actually, I guess, it's actually pretty good news. The happy yeah. birthday. Happy birthday is public domain. Former owner Warner Chapel to pay $14 million. Winning lawyer says more bogus copyrights may come under legal attack. The public will soon be free to sing the world's most famous song. Music publisher Warner Chapel will no longer be allowed to collect licensing royalties on those who sing Happy Birthday in public and will pay back $14 million to those who have paid for licensing in the past, according to a court settlement papers filed late Monday night. The settlement is the result of a lawsuit originally filed in 2013 by filmmaker Jennifer Nelson, who challenged the Happy Birthday copyright. Happy Birthday has the same melody as Good Morning to You, a children's song dating to the 19th century. But despite the song's murky early history, music publisher Warner Chappell has stuck to the story that the song was copyrighted in 1935 and a royalty had to be paid for any public use of it until now. The deal still needs to be approved by U.S. District Judge George King, who was overseeing the case. King gave Nielsen and other plaintiffs an interim victory in September when he ruled that the copyright transfer deal that Warner had relied on was invalid. In that decision, the judge added that in his view, it's questionable whether the alleged author, Patty Hill, wrote the song at all. Lawyers for the two sides told the judge in December that they had reached a basic agreement over a settlement, but it took nearly two months for the details to be finalized and made public. Warner Chapel has been collecting an estimated $2 million annually from people who use the Happy Birthday song, mainly in creative works like movies and television shows. For the makers of independent documentaries like Nelson, the several thousand dollars charged can be a significant expense. The makers of the acclaimed 1990s documentary Hoop Dreams famously paid $5,000 to show a sing scene where a family of one of its main subjects sings the happy birthday song. Culture shift. The $14 million will be paid to two distinct groups, those who paid a licensing fee to Warner Chapel before 2009 and those who paid in 2009 or later. The earlier group is eligible to receive up to 15% of what they paid whereas the latter group is eligible for a full refund. Nelson's lawyer, Randall Newman, who spoke to Ars Technica Monday night shortly after the settlement was finalized, said the difference in payouts is related to the statute of limitations. The judge in the case allowed the complaint to address claims going back to 1949, but he seemed skeptical about certifying a class that large, he said. 
there's a huge problem with the statute of limitations. We're not sure earlier claims ever would have gotten class certified, and they're not going to certify individual claims from 1952. It's a pretty good deal, he added. It's not one of those settlements where the attorneys get millions of dollars and the class gets a coupon for a free soda. The people are getting real money back. The most important part of the whole case was having the song in the public domain. You're going to see Happy Birthday in movies, in TVs, all over the place. It's a huge victory for artists and an important case in history. Now that Newman has pioneered the strategy of using a class action lawsuit to attack a bogus copyright, it's unlikely to be the last time copyright reformers hear his name. I think there are a few other songs that we're going to attempt to free up next, he told ours. I don't want to say the names. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good news, actually, considering. Yes. I mean, yeah, it's been rumbling on for ages. Yeah. But yeah. And of course, it'll still rumble on for a while because, well, I don't know, are Warner Chappelle going to appeal, take it to the higher courts, all that nonsense? But, I think they've... Yeah. Yeah, well, still, it was pretty good news, considering. Considering all the horrible shit we talk about, that was a pretty good way to end it, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I, oh, Muppets? Why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. And that's it for this week, you guys. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next Monday. <laughs>